you can actually remain standing and grab your Bible and turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. And uh, last week we started something new uh, of having some members of our congregation, families read our passage of scripture. And I'm excited this morning for us to have another one of our families read for us today. So please open your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, as we have another one of our sweet families read our passage and pray for us today. Let's watch this. Hi, First Mansfield. Today we are reading 1 Peter chapter 1, 20, verse 22, through chapter 2, verse 3. You have made yourselves true, pure, by, true and pure by obeying the truth. So you have an honest and true love for each other. So love one another deeply from your hearts. You have been born again by means of the living Lord. His word lasts forever. You are not born again from a seed that will die. You are born from a seed that can't die. It is written, All people are like grass. All their glory is like flowers in a field. The grass dries up. The flowers fall to the ground. But the word of the Lord lasts forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. God, I pray for Dr. Plumley and that you will keep him safe. I pray for um, those that have not accepted you. I pray that some will accept you today, and I pray for those that have. I pray that, they, that um, you will touch their hearts and let them spread your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you so much, guys. Well, in 1941... C.S. Lewis wrote the Screwtape Letters. How many of you have heard of the Screwtape Letters? Anybody heard of that? A lot of you have. Screwtape Letters is a fictional dialogue between two demons. Uh, and it's meant to give insight about how the enemy tries to distract and destroy God's people. Screwtape, as he's writing to his nephew, Wormwood, is writing about the man that they're trying to tempt and distract who's become a Christian and who's even started to attend church. And I want you to listen to what Screwtape says to Wormwood about this Christian beginning to go to church. He says, but there is one good point which both these churches have in common. They are both party churches. I think I warned you before that if your patient can't be kept out of church, he ought at least to be violently attached to some party within it. I don't mean on really doctrinal issues. About those, the more lukewarm he is, the better. And it isn't the doctrines in which we should chiefly depend for malice. The real fun is working up hatred between those who say mass and those who say holy communion when neither party could possibly state the difference between them. You see, if the enemy can't keep you out of church, He's going to do everything to keep a church fighting amongst itself. One of the reasons I bring this up is because I believe the church is one of the most essential elements in the life 
of a believer who's dedicated to being a pilgrim of the king. In fact, 1 Peter is a book that's written as a guide to pilgrims, people who are passing through this world, people who don't belong here, who are representing another king in another kingdom. And this reality of the kingdom of God that's breaking into this world through the church means that we have to take great care to make sure we as a church family are living out God's design for the church. Now, I know the case is often such that we've often seen unhealthy views of the church, unhealthy displays of the church through church fights or difficulties that churches may have. But what I wanna show you today from God's word is that there is a way for a church to pull together based on the unity they have in Christ and the love they're to have for one another that brings real health and life. In fact, I would say it this way, because of our connection in Christ, we must stick together. Because Christ has connected us as a body of believers through his blood, you and I are people that must unite together in Christ and stick together. I wanna show you two ways from this passage of scripture this morning that you and I can stick together through Christ. Number one, I wanna show you that we need to stick together through sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Look in your Bibles at 1 Peter 1, verse 22. He says, since you have purified yourselves by your obedience to the truth, so that you show sincere brotherly love for each other. Now, this is something Peter's already talked about. He's already talked about our connection to Jesus and the sprinkling of his blood that's brought redemption, it's brought forgiveness. But here he adds a new dimension to the grace and mercy of Jesus. He adds that not only have we been connected to Christ, we've also been connected to each other. He says that you and I have been brought to this obedience truth to show a brotherly love for each other. That's the word phileo. It emphasizes that the church is meant to have this kind of family connection. Over the last uh, several weeks, my seven-year-old son, Noah, learned to ride his bike without his training wheels. Isn't that exciting? Every parent that goes through that process knows that that's an exciting, exciting moment for your kid. But, but what kids don't realize is that parents, and usually dads, spend a lot of time holding onto the back of that bike. For weeks, we worked and we practiced until he got confident to be able to just take off on his own. I spent a lot of time on my knees, looking at him, talking to him, encouraging him. Parents, I know you've done the same thing as you've helped your kids develop that kind of confidence. But as I've looked at that bike, day after day, week after week, as we've been practicing, it called me again to look at just the basic, simple genius of the design of a bicycle wheel. If you look at that bike wheel, it's got that hub and it's got all these individual spokes coming into the middle of it. And it provides, right, that safety and security, that strength that when Noah B. Plumley takes off down the sidewalk, he can do so with confidence. Those hubs that move into that spoke have, an, have a function, but they're also dependent on each other. They have responsibility to hold up, to keep the wheel up, but they're connected in such a way where they're all working together. Well, the reason I mention that is because you in Christ are a lot like that hub and that spoke. 
When you come to know Jesus, Jesus connects you to him. He gives you by faith, forgiveness, mercy, his presence. But simultaneously, when you connect to Jesus, you're also connecting to all the other believers in the history of the church. There's a vital connection between you and Jesus and everyone else who claims him as Savior and Lord. Now, we're still not independent. We don't rely on ourselves, but we're not codependent. We can't live without people. There's an interdependent kind of connection we have where the wheel of the church is meant to move forward in the Great Commission in reliance on Christ and on each other. Here's the point. We need each other. We were called to connect to one another in such a way that we're not just connecting to Jesus, we're also connecting to one another. There's a vital, growing, real connection you have to every believer. And so a church, when a church comes together, what they're doing is they're declaring that not only have I been saved unto God, a church is declaring we've also been connected to each other in a real way deep kind of way. It makes missing you guys all the more real. I love seeing some of our family here together today. I know this crazy season we're living in may keep some of us from gathering for quite some time, but I want you to know the longing to gather together, the longing to be together comes from a real and vital connection we have. And from this connection, Peter says, look back at your Bibles, because you have this connection From a pure heart, love one another constantly. He says we're to love one another with pure motives, with not another agenda, constantly. That that means it doesn't stop, but we're to love each other with a sacrificial kind of love. Now, this is important because this word is different than the word previously. Previously, he used the word phileo which emphasizes a kind of familiar, a brotherly and sisterly kind of love. But here he uses the word agape, which is where we get the idea of a divine, divinely motivated, self-sacrificing kind of love. The kind of love we're to have for one another as we're connected to that hub that is Jesus is a love that puts others ahead of ourselves. I was reading this past week about uh, some prisoners of war in a North Korean prison camp during the Korean War. These American soldiers were lined up in a very, very tiny room. And every single night, one of the North Korean officers would burst in the door and he would mercilessly beat the man closest to the door. This happened one night, second night, third night. Finally, the soldier realized if we don't do something, this guy who's sitting closest to the door is gonna die. He's gonna take beating after beating. He's not gonna be able to stand up. So you know what the soldiers did is they began to take turns sitting closest to the door. And every night they would discuss among themselves who was the strongest, who was the healthiest, and they would pick that person. That person would choose to sit closest to the door and absorb the beating so that the others that were weak or sick or tired wouldn't have to endure it. Now, what is that? What motivates those soldiers to offer their lives in the place of someone else. That's sacrificial love. It's putting someone else's needs, someone else's concerns ahead of my own. 
So what he's saying, church, is that a healthy church, a thriving place for pilgrims to come and be encouraged, an outpost of the kingdom is a place where we are loving each other with a love that sees the people around me as more important than myself. You know, being away from gathering has given us as family a great opportunity to talk about what church is really about. And one of the conversations we've had with our kiddos is that church is actually not about us. Church is not about me or you. It's actually about God. Can I just say that that's not just a conversation for kids? (laughs) That's a conversation for everybody. Church is actually not about me getting something. Church is a place where I'm gathering, coming together to give something. The question is, If we're called to have that kind of orientation and attitude, how can we do that? Where do we find the strength and the energy to do that? Look at the Bible at verse 23, as he tells us why and how we're to love one another that way. Look at what he says, verse 23. You should sacrificially love one another because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Why do you love one another sacrificially? It's because you've been loved with an imperishable, enduring love that will last forever. Peter says there are forms of love like the flower. They're going to fade. They're going to die. Their relationships are going to come and go. But your relationship with God, the love he's shown and given you will endure to the end. So here's the principle I want you to write down, okay? The principle I want you to understand is that Jesus forms and fuels our love. What's gonna keep a church living out the kind of sacrificial love Peter calls us to is when we understand that Jesus models and motivates our love. Said another way, Jesus exemplifies and he energizes the love we're called to have. On the one hand, Jesus forms, he models, he gives us an example where to follow. If we need to understand the example of the love of Jesus, all we have to do is look at our feet. Now, I know some of you think you have gnarly feet or nasty feet or somebody around you has nasty feet, but trust me, none of us have seen nasty, gnarly feet unless we can go back to the New Testament, okay? Uh, Dirt, feces, blood, urine, grime, slime, mix it together, warm it up, stir gently, and those are the feet of the New Testament era, okay? Nasty. People's feet were absolutely sickening. And one particular night, As Jesus was with his disciples sitting down for a meal, they noticed that no one's feet had been cleaned. And so as the disciples kind of nervously begin to look around the room, you ever had that moment where something's going wrong and you're trying to figure out how you're going to fix it? Out of the corner of their eye, they see Jesus standing up, rolling up his sleeves, getting a basin of water and kneeling down and beginning to wash their feet one by one. You ever thought about the feet that Jesus washed? 
I know they're nasty, but you ever thought about the people he washed? On the one hand, he washed a guy like Thomas's feet, who just days later would doubt that Jesus was really Lord and that he'd really come back to life. On the other hand, he washed polar opposites like Matthew, who was a tax collector who believed in the government and the system. And then he washed the feet of Simon the Zealot. He wanted to be done with the government, destroy it. On the other hand, he washed Peter's feet. He usually had his foot in his mouth, but he washed his feet. He had a conversation with Peter. But have you ever considered that Jesus also washed Judas's feet? Judas Iscariot, the man who would betray him, the feet Jesus is watching are the same feet that are gonna go and turn him over to the authorities for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus... The all-knowing son of God knows all of this stuff and more. And yet he gets down on his hands and his knees and he washes their feet. Why? It's because you and I don't have a prideful king who sits with his arms crossed in heaven, hoping we figure things out. We have a servant king who breaks into the world to seek and save the lost. That's what you and I have. That's our example. That's the model we follow. Why do I love the people in this congregation sacrificially as a servant, putting them ahead of myself? It's because this living and enduring word of God is the son of God who gave us an example to follow. But Jesus does more than that. Jesus doesn't just give you an example. He actually gives you the fuel, the energy you need to love people. You ever had somebody in your life that was hard to love? You ever been around somebody that maybe had a little extra grace required to love them, to serve them, to encourage them? Where do you find the fuel to love people, for example, that have hurt you? That maybe you've been discouraged by or that have done something that's wronged you? Jesus doesn't just show us how to love people. He actually gives us the fuel to love them. Several months ago, I was driving to Odessa from DFW, Interstate 20, all the way out there. And one of the things you'll notice if you make that drive is that there are these wind turbines. How many of you have seen those wind turbines on either side of the road? Okay, they're everywhere as you're driving out into West Texas. And what those things are designed to do is they're designed to provide a renewable source of energy, right? The wind is supposed to turn those things and they provide the source of energy that's meant to power our industries and our world. What I want you to remember is that when you came to know Jesus, you have been given a renewable source of energy within you. If you can picture that fan, always turning, those blades are always moving. That's what God has poured into your life. Because when Jesus died for you, the reason there's a fan spinning and turning in your soul is because he's poured into you. What he says here is an enduring, abiding, imperishable kind of love. So the way I love people that are difficult, the way I put others ahead of myself is by pressing in to the love Jesus has shown me. I don't have to get something from people because I already have what I need. I don't have to use people for my ends because Jesus 
has given me the love that frees me, not to use people, but to love people. So let me ask you this question. How are you doing loving the people Jesus has put in your life? How are you doing loving those people? How are you doing loving people in your home? Can we just say it? Sometimes the people that are hardest to love are the ones that are closest to us. Don't look at me like that, okay? Your families are exactly the same as mine. It's tough sometimes. You can be really, really grating on each other. How you doing, moms and dads, loving each other sacrificially? Dads, do your words reflect a putting ahead of others? Do you, do you seek to serve your family and put them ahead of yourself? Parents, how are you doing cultivating a culture of service in your home to where your kids aren't there just to receive and to get, but that you're helping them see that their life mission should be to invest their lives in others. One of the places we've got to start loving one another sacrificially is in our homes. But let me ask it a different way. How are you doing loving people that are different than you? How are you doing loving people that look different than you? That maybe vote differently than you do? Can we just say it? One of the most divisive topics on places like social media in our culture is politics. And I'll be the first to confess, there are certain politicians, certain situations, when they come on the TV screen, I have a hard time loving those people. But let, let me remind you, every single human bears the image of God. Every single one of them have a soul that God has made. And though this year, Lord willing, we'll have an election, and they're going to count votes, you and I should be less concerned about votes and more concerned about the souls of the people in this country. Don't forget the love we're called to sacrificially show the people that are around us. So a healthy church functions in a, as an outpost of the kingdom for pilgrims when first we stick together through sacrificial love. But the second kind of love we're called to show in this passage is a maturing love. We're to stick together with maturing love. Flip over to chapter two. I want you to skip down to verse two in chapter two to see the command that Peter gives us. He says, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So he talks here about the pure milk of the word. This is the unadulterated truth of the gospel. He's already told us that the word is the gospel that was proclaimed to us. He mentions here that we've tasted and seen that the Lord is good if we know him. What this is calling us to remember at a really simple level is that God saves, not us. The pure milk of the word is the reality that I don't save myself, that God is the one who saves. Jesus took our penalty, our punishment. He died on the cross, he rose again by, <clears throat> by faith. By faith, we are brought into right relationship with God. And he says, you, like an infant, like a newborn baby should long for this kind of dependence. I remember 
when we brought Seth and Noah and Paige home from the hospital, that I learned one immutable law about kids. The only way a baby knows how to communicate is by crying. That's it. There's no other form of communication that you will hear from a newborn baby. But did you know, moms and dads, that when a child cries, research has shown that it activates centers in your brain for empathy and attention. Anytime a newborn cries, anytime a baby cries, even if it's not yours, there's this part of your brain that begins to go off that's connected to empathy, concern, and attention. You begin to look at them. Part of God's design with that is, is helping parents recognize that while sometimes it's hard to hear a crying baby at three in the morning, that they need us. It's a cry of dependence, right? It's a cry of longing. What Peter's saying here is that you and I are to have this kind of gospel dependence on God, not just in the past, but in the present. Let me remind you that you need Jesus today just as much as you needed him when you first got saved. That's important. Let me say that again. You need Jesus as much today as you do the very moment you first came to know Christ. Sometimes I think we can overemphasize our point of conversion so much so that the only way we think about God moving is in the past. Please understand, you need God to move right now in your life. Not just to help you sort out the details of your life, but in the battle you're waging against sin in your life. The battle for holiness that you're fighting, the battle to see others around you come to know Christ. You're waging in a spiritual battle. We need Christ right now. So what he says is this kind of gospel dependence, this newborn-like dependence is to help us, look verse two, grow up into salvation. Let me make it simple. Spiritual maturity is not just growing in more knowledge. Spiritual maturity is growing in your ability to connect the gospel to real life. It's not just knowing the gospel, it's actually learning how to live the gospel. See, one of my biggest concerns as your pastor is that there are a lot of us that know about the gospel. We might be able to recount some of the key elements of the gospel, but we don't know how it really connects to our lives. Jesus isn't shaping really how I look at my world, how I look at my life, how I look at my calling. It's kind of a compartment that shows up on Sunday morning or Sunday night or Wednesday night or whenever I pull out my Bible. Let me give you an example from my life um, to talk about this kind of gospel applied idea. One of my greatest struggles as a believer is comparison. I struggle with comparing myself to others and not thinking that I measure up. Could be another pastor who's got something going on and I think, man, I'm, I'm such a loser. <laughs> I'm not doing what I should be doing. Could be another dad who I see doing certain dad things and I think, man, I'm, I'm not really doing what I should do as a dad. Could be another husband who's constantly posting stuff on social media and I think, man, I, I'm just not measuring up. Can we just all agree, by the way, that social media hasn't helped us in the comparison game? And what I have to recognize is the answer to comparison is not 
well, man, I am a great person. I'm smart enough, good enough, and people like me. That's not the answer to comparison. The answer, the gospel answer to comparison is pressing into the lie I'm believing underneath comparison. What I'm believing underneath it is that the calling God's given me is not good enough. And what's underneath that is I'm not believing and resting in the acceptance I have in Jesus. When I say I don't measure up because I'm comparing myself to others, I'm totally forgetting that what Jesus says is you do measure up. Not because of what you've done, but because of what I've done. That's the gospel fluency that we need in our lives. That's learning how to take the truth of the gospel and connect it to the daily struggles I've faced in my thought life. That's what it means to grow up into salvation. Growing up into salvation is not more Bible trivia. It's really learning how to connect a dependence on Jesus into the normal everyday struggles we face. Maybe it's not comparison for you. What is it? What, what's your thing? What's your struggle? How is the gospel connecting to your real life in that struggle? What Peter's saying is that a healthy church has a maturing kind of love in its midst in which we are helping one another apply the gospel to our lives. That we're immersing ourselves in a culture One author calls it gospel fluency in the same way that you would go to another country to learn a language, right? Go to some place where they speak Spanish and you immerse yourself there for a semester to learn Spanish and that's all they're speaking and that's what you learn. That the church should be a place where gospel fluency is what we're encouraging. That we talk about Jesus, talk about how he impacts our lives so much that we're encouraging each other how to connect Jesus into those comparison prideful moments like I have. That I wouldn't just sort through that on my own, but that I would be in a community with other believers that are helping me do that. This is the opposite of what he says in verse one. Look back in your Bible, verse one. He says, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. In other words, rid yourself of kind of the relational dynamics that make it all about you. Make it about your life, about what you want, about you. And instead embrace a kind of gospel dependence that makes it about Jesus. Here's the principle I want you to write down. Okay, you ready? The principle is this, gospel dependent relationships always cultivate authenticity. When I'm in a gospel dependent relationship in which Jesus is the hero, there's an authenticity, there's an openness, there's a vulnerability that begins to show up in my relationships. We see examples of this all throughout the Bible. One of them is actually about Peter. You may not know that the author of the book we're studying at one point in his ministry got off track. Peter began to be convinced that if Gentile Christians didn't follow the law, that he shouldn't associate with them. And so if you can imagine like a lunchroom, middle school lunchroom, like all the different lunchroom tables, Peter wouldn't sit at the Gentile Christian lunchroom table. He wouldn't hang out with them. He wouldn't associate with them. And so at one point, Paul shows up, sees Peter doing this and says, Peter, 
if you who didn't follow the law received the grace of God, how can you withhold the grace of God from these Gentiles who aren't following the law either? In other words, he was calling him out on his hypocrisy. Peter, how can you say that you're keeping the law when you can't keep the law either? You're not keeping the law perfectly. You can't keep the 10 commandments perfectly. Why are you who received the grace of God though you didn't keep the law withholding grace and fellowship from these precious Gentile people? Paul didn't do that by the way in private. He didn't pull Peter aside and say, hey, let's talk about this in private for a second. He did it in front of everybody. Wouldn't you love to have a friend like Paul? You know why that happened though? It's because when you're in a gospel dependent relationship, you care more about Jesus transforming someone's life than you do about being liked. All of us need people in our lives that care more about Jesus changing us than they do about us liking them. This also shows up in the life of David. Remember King David, one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. At the lowest point of his ministry, his kingship, he abuses his power. He has an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. He uses his power to kill her husband. And he uses his authority to take her as his wife. And he thinks he's covered it all up. But the Bible says the thing David had done displeased the Lord. You remember what God did? God sent the prophet Nathan. Nathan came to David, told him a story about a man abusing his authority. And the story ends with Nathan looking at David and saying, David, you are the man. David, you're the one who sinned in this egregious way and God sees it. I would just ask you this question about your life. Do you have anybody in your life that can look at you and point their finger in your face and say, you are the man. You are the woman. Do you have anybody in your constellation of relationships who cares more about Jesus working in your life than they do about you liking them? And is willing to put your friendship, your relationship on the line to speak that kind of truth into you? when the church is functioning in a way that's healthy, when the church is immersing itself in this kind of maturing love, it's maturing love that shows up in my life and a kind of gospel dependency that shows up in authenticity. What I want for all of you more than anything is to not see you isolated so you're easy to pick off by the enemy, but to see you in a web and a hub and spoke series of interdependent relationships where there are people that love you enough to authentically hold you accountable. In 1944, as the Allied forces were making their way into the Netherlands, they realized that if they didn't take decisive action, that the war could be prolonged for months, maybe even years. You know, the Netherlands is a series of waterways there, and they knew that if they didn't control strategic bridges and roads, that the enemy could destroy those bridges and make it almost impossible to blaze a trail through the Netherlands. And so they enacted in 1944 Operation Market Garden, which was this series of advanced teams that went in behind enemy lines and took these bridges 
and strategic water crossways and just was gonna try to hold those for a number of days until the armored divisions could break through the German lines and relieve them. It worked great to a point. The advanced divisions took many of those bridges and strategic roads, but the problem was that the armored divisions that were meant to break through never got there. And so these hundreds of troops that were holding these strategic positions got cut off, got surrounded, and most of them were killed or captured. And I finished my message this morning just by saying this. I wonder how many of you, many of you are cut off and surrounded because you don't have these kinds of relationships through the church and you don't even know it. I wonder how, some, how many of us, because we don't have a Nathan in our life, we don't have a Paul in our life who will speak truth into us, are isolated. We have our blind spots and we can't see the truth because we don't have people speaking into us. And my absolute plea with you today will be to connect in those kind of relationships. If you don't have those kind of people, be that kind of person. Start just by being that person. But I can't tell you how many times as a pastor, when I'm counseling with somebody about a wayward family member, about a spouse who's having an affair, all manner of sin in homes that I say, is there anybody in that person's life that can speak truth into them? I know your wife's leaving you. I know your child's running away from the Lord, but is there anybody around them, any other believers that can speak into them? And you know what I hear almost exclusively? No, there's nobody in their life that could help them. Nobody that can speak to them. They cut off those kind of relationships a long time ago. See, before you ever get into that kind of darkness and sin, what I've seen over and over and over again is you wall yourself in, you cut yourself off from those kind of connections. Don't do that. Please don't do that. Maybe this message, and it's just hit me now as we're talking, is even more important in this whole COVID-19 season. I know we're not able to gather. I know online meetings are tough. I know there may be some fatigue sitting in, Zoom fatigue. Anybody got Zoom fatigue? Don't stop pressing in. Be known. Be connected. Be the kind of person that's looking out for others to speak truth into their lives. Because of our connection in Christ, because of what we have as a church, we need to stick together through the sacrificial love that we've been given and the maturing love that immerses us in gospel dependence. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I pray. Oh God, I pray that you and you alone God would move and speak through what we've shared from your word today. And Father, I pray, God, for believers listening to this, watching this. Oh God, I pray that you would not let us get disconnected. I pray for people right now, Lord, that feel isolated, that feel alone, feel disconnected, that this church, what we do through ministries like life groups, the community that's happening all over this city, God, we continue to thrive and flourish. God, I pray for healthy relationships grounded in you, grounded in what you've done for us would really, really emerge. God, I thank you for your mercy and your grace in our lives. I pray, Lord, that as we move into a time of response that you would speak. 
you would encourage and bless our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.